This is Power Athlete Radio. With your host, Denny Cage, Professor Booty, and the Luke Summers. And now, toes forward, hips locked, shoulders set, and retract those scapulas. It's time for some knowledge bombs. This week, we host Tom Furman. Tom has quite the training history and has made a name for himself coaching and publishing several books that fall well into the fitness biz. From diet to traditional strength and conditioning, Tom gives an insight into his world and his coaching experiences. Tom is an even-keeled guy with a nose for bullshit and a passion for performance. As you'll hear, he's as much into the mental influence a coach can have over his athletes than any program or ideal rep set spread. His comments regarding success in defeating a shitty body composition are priceless. In short, if you're a nerd, you'll be successful. Hear this dynamic training guru give you his unique point of view about everything from hip to waist ratios to some interesting thoughts about Stuart McGill's findings and philosophies. Tom Furman is not hopping on a bandwagon anytime soon. Here he is in episode 130. What's happening, Power Athlete Nation? Welcome to another episode of Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. This is Denny. I'm joined with Luke and John, and our guest today is Tom Furman. Tom's been involved in martial arts and conditioning for since 1972. He's got a background in wrestling. He's a student of the methods of yard York Barbell Club. Uh, he's, he's the author of an ebook called Armor of War. He grew up in the Pittsburgh area. He's got a career in film and theater and has 11 members of his family were combat veterans. Tom, thanks for taking the time to join us on the show today. Glad to be here, guys. Glad to be anywhere. Eleven members of the family were combat veterans, dude. That's you must come from a hardcore family. Um, my mom's side. Actually, I was researching um a little bit of online information about my mother's family, who were um all coal miners. They were come from the Johnstown area. Actually, spoke to one of my aunts yesterday, who is 83 and still kicking, mm-hmm. and uh, has a boyfriend, believe it or not, at 83. And um, my mom's family had 15 members, 15 children. And they were all coal miners and so forth. And um, they all were around the World War II age. So they were, you know, involved in World War II. My dad came from, he was one of three brothers. Two were involved in World War II. And one was um, in the Korean War. Then I had uh, uh, another cousin or so, I think, in Vietnam. So we run the gamut from the... Um, World War II through the Korean War and Vietnam. So it added up to 11 when I added it up one day. And I thought about that and I thought, well, everyone I grew up with kind of had the same type of perspective and things like that about life. And it was kind of a filter process. And that uh, it's just everybody did that stuff. So everybody knew handguns. Everybody knew about this. Everybody knew about hard work. They were either mill workers or, or coal miners. 
And, and that was what I grew up with. I didn't grow up around physicians. I didn't grow up around teachers. And I didn't grow up around people from the Philharmonic. That's what I grew up with. It doesn't mean, like I said, it's better or, or worse. It's just kind of the filter I used early in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Pittsburgh is kind of known for, like, breeding, like, these, you know, blue-collar workers, just badasses. A lot, of, uh, um, a lot of tough sons of bitches come out of Pittsburgh. I was going to say, kind of, Denny, kind of not really. I mean, dude, Pittsburgh is like the coal miner. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been out there much, but it's like, I mean, that's the, uh, uh, you know, hub for, you know, if you look at like the original Steelers and, uh, you know, NFL players, I mean, that Pittsburgh area has been, always been that kind of blue-collar, hard-work area. So that and Pomani Brothers, which was always our favorite place to hit whenever we went out to Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's kind of actually after I left that that came about, but certainly the 70s Steelers, and the Steelers later on, for sure, but, you know, that kind of epitomized, I, like I mentioned, I grew up about 10 miles from Bruno San Martino, who was his biggest celebrity in Pittsburgh at that time that you could ever believe. He just turned 80, by the way, and still kicking and doing well. And well, the, uh, the old powerlifter that uh, uh, George Zangus, uh, that, that trained me, he was from Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. and so, yeah, um, yeah he uh, would always regale us of, you know, the fact that, uh, like, Dan Marino and all these guys all grew up and played at the same high schools. And I remember he, like, had some, you know, connection to the Roonies. And it was just kind of a, a real small, you know, like, kind of everybody knew each other. And there was a lot of great athletes. But, I mean, a big part of the stuff that we did, especially early on in my training, like, we he had a real steep driveway. And we'd have to, like, run up and down it with, like, you know, uh, heavy dumbbells. And, you know, now it's it's pretty funny. We Like, after we trained, we always did some little bout of conditioning. And, uh, you know, just – it. You know, as we were talking offline earlier, like there really isn't anything new, even though it just gets new names or people repurpose things to be, oh, this is this new training system, and it's like, lift weights and get your heart rate up. Yeah, no, we've been doing that for a long time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for yeah. offering that to me. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, um, Bruce Lee was doing peripheral heart action training on a Marcy trainer back in the late '60s and '70s. Come on, um, he was doing some of the power lifts back then too. Uh, Bruce Lee's mentor was one of his students who was older than him, James Yim Lee, who he met in San Francisco, had trained with um, Steve Reeves. And he was a welder, so he built equipment for Bruce Lee, and he taught him about weight training. And then, believe it or not, Bruce Lee trained at Vince Gironda's gym in Studio City, California. Yeah. Not there, but he, he conferred with him point blank, and I used to correspond with Vince. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, as a kid, yeah, like it's just... I, I I used to eat. I, uh, you know, Zangus always talked about the Stone Age diet, and yep. that yep. was the diet that we ate. And actually, the power athlete diet is a is pretty much the Stone Age diet. So when when uh, people start talking about the Paleo diet, I'm like, you mean the Paleo diet with uh, with milk? Because that's the Stone Age diet. That was that. Well, that and also Zangus told us it's hands full of uh, Diana Ball. Was yeah, the other part yeah. of that diet? So it was it was raw milk, Diana Ball, and then a paleo diet. So. Yeah, yeah, it was funny because I just read an interview with one of uh, Vince's guys, Don Howarth, who was known as having the broadest shoulders, and he had been in the film industry. He had actually done framing. He'd done all these different jobs, and he just said, "We took so little of Diana Ball. Anything a little bit more, it would make us sick." So we took very little, but he said we trained so freaking hard and ate a lot. And he said that that was the difference. It was we didn't know that much, but we knew that helped kind of recover and train harder but that that was kind of it and he said we, we had no lives because I had to take like years off at the time just to recover mentally and physically from how much they trained because they felt like training all day and it was a good life good weather all that stuff and they'd find enough to make a living and and he got incredible results and you're talking about a guy with herniated discs in his back early on and that's back in Mr. America you had to compete you had a press 
uh, clean and jerk and snatch, then enter the bodybuilding contest. Oh, so that's you're right. an athlete. You're an athlete, and then you went into posing shorts to show that you you know you didn't have fat and you were bounced in your physique. That's back in the day, yeah. Well, that was um, yeah. Like I think they did uh, the lifts on Friday, and then the pose down was on Saturday. I mean, yep. there are those famous pictures that um, you know every uh, you know internet site loves to put up those pictures of uh, Roger Estep. Uh, mm -hmm. deadlifting and he's just you know fucking like four percent body fat i mean what yeah. they don't show is that was on friday night and then east f went and competed in the bodybuilding on saturday night so i mean it's uh you know i mean but there's always been that kind of i, I don't know and, and you know we always have that conversation quite frankly with people where it's like uh do you want to be strong or you want to look strong and i think a lot of people today would rather hey man i just want to look strong i don't give a shit what, you know what i do and it kind of perpetuates it a little bit well um i i don't necessarily think they're um contradictory goals uh and it, you know Klokov looks pretty fit regardless but they just did that survey it was up oh it was all over facebook last week of what women were choosing and it was the fight club brad pitt they, they blanked out the face they didn't use the face and some women probably knew the picture but it was it was the um fight club brad pitt that they were attracted to and you said well women are prejudiced women are this women are threatened whatever the case but you a lot of men go into training and fitness to be more attractive to women. Let's face it, the classic high school thing of the football hero getting all the girls, guys like you guys. And um, But the reality is that past a certain point, it's not necessarily attractive and you're training for your, your buddies, yourself, for goals and things like that. And it has nothing to do with how you appear to the opposite sex. Um, it, it's I don't think they're necessarily goals. I think the difference between being strong and looking strong is a matter of you know putting too much in your pie hole. So that's that's pretty simple. Well, the uh, you know what I'll 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 tell you I had a you know obviously I was you know training for well when I started lifting weights it was really just for football but I think I was like 165 pounds when I started mm -hmm. and I remember from like 165 up to about 215 220 where I was like you know 16 17 years old it was like you know like oh you, you know like I got a little more attention from girls and then all of a sudden there was just like no man's land from like mm -hmm. 230 up to about 285 <laughs> 290 yeah. where uh, it was like real lean years and then once I got around 300 pounds all of a sudden that turned around miraculously and I always wondered why and I remember probably if you came to the point where like they're like this guy probably plays football and probably have some money at some point so I'm gonna be nice <laughs> to him so I remember yeah, like yeah. yeah like there was like a, a pretty real thing like over you know girls like over like do you play football I'm like is this written on me well yeah there's not too many 300 pound dudes walking around six five so yeah. I think that there's a, a a magic size for that stuff but uh you know definitely and uh, there there was a funny picture I think Mark Bell posted where it was like uh, it showed this uh, this guy lifting weights like a little like stick figure with all these girls and it's like uh, you know what you think happens and underneath it was like a stick figure with like a whole bunch of guys standing around what really happens when you lift weights you know it's just basically a bunch of dudes who you think you're doing it for a bunch of girls yeah so, yeah it's it's just like the old stories like when you're younger you go to a strip club and you know, you're all relatively young I was hanging out with a bunch of martial arts guys we're fighting all the time you go to a strip club or something like that and you think we're well, young fit attractive guys and you look across the room and there's some guy with a big gut and oily hair and he's surrounded by women. I go, what's he got? And they go, money. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll tell you, the, the loneliest guy at the strip club is the uh, the good-looking dude with with uh, with no money in his pocket. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, it's 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 hysterical, and then you realize what a what a potent contributor that is, and and it gets back to like probably the caveman with the with the best spear and fighting skills because he could provide security and he had the best cave, and so it was a it was a survival mechanism in our you know our our our. Uh, anthropology and so forth. Certain things affect our anthropology for sure. And, and it's for people to say it's controlled by Cosmopolitan or Madison Avenue or advertising is insane. It's, it's hardwired in our, in our brain. Yeah. That's what one of our, one of our hosts, Steve Pladdock is a, a, a professor of biology and he, that's one of his things is attractiveness Attraction. and mm -hmm. uh, how it goes back to basically what is hardwired from our, uh, you know, Paleolithic brethren. But, but, sisters, uh, but. To, to, to fly in the face of that, we were uh, a couple years ago, I did a seminar for Stockholm uh, PD. I got one over and worked with uh, the SWAT guys from Stockholm. Mm -hmm. And so we went out, went out with all these guys, and uh, they were all, you know, like you know, in shape, pretty good, you know, bigger dudes. Yeah. And as we're walking around, like down in Stuttgart, which is like the main kind of trendy area, I'm seeing girls that were like any girl that, like, I mean, we saw like, that, you know, uh, hundreds of these girls, but any girl, if you plucked and put her anywhere, in the United States would be the hottest girl you've ever seen. Mm -hmm. right. and, and I remember like just girls like runway model looking beautiful girls. And mm -hmm. all the dudes they were hanging with were all like five foot six, 135 pound dudes with like capri pants, pink shirts, sweater over. And I thought mm -hmm. they were, I was like, Oh, they're hanging out with all their gay friends. <laughs> and uh, so we started talking to these girls and they weren't giving us time of day. And I was like, what's up? And they were like rapping with these dudes. I'm like, Oh, are you, you know, here with your gay friends? And they're like, no, they're not gay. And I was like, looking <laughs> at them and I'm like, so confused. And then they, they basically, the girl told me, she's like, you guys look like a bunch of roughnecks, uh, construction workers, like big guys. It's the small, you know, uh, metrosexual, good-looking guys that dress really well are the ones with money, and that's the mm -hmm. girls. Once the girls want. Well, that was that yeah. was part of his talk from the last symposium. You know, I should pull that sucker out and get that posted because that was that was pretty good stuff. What yeah, he had the hip, uh, what the hip ratio or something like. Yeah, he, for men, like there is a ratio yeah. between hip size and waist size on a woman. Uh, that ratio is 0.7, and then yeah, we will exactly. find. We'll find that 0.7 ratio, regardless of size, it's the ratio that will tend to be more attractive to us visually when we, you know, as we. Well, what guess, about women? What are women attracted to? They, women, women that change the shoulders, hips. Um, they, they, they were strong, strongly to uh, arm size for obviously mm -hmm. warfare, um, you know, buttocks, probably sexuality and so forth. But it's interesting about if you look at every, in back in my day, let's look at all the femme fatales of Sophia Lorena, Raquel Welch. They had 0.7 or better, 0.68. I actually wrote an article about this a while back in their hip ratio. So they're universally considered sexy women. Pamela Anderson had a 0.5 ratio waist to hips. And internet model Denise Milani, who runs between 19 and 21 inches in her waist, has a 0.5. It's like off the charts. And she's like, the most viewed girl on the internet, mm -hmm. and she she's actually does figure competition too, so um, it, it it does work. And like long hair, long hair works means nutrition. Good teeth means nutrition. It also it's, means uh, youth because uh, yeah, young girls, yeah. right? Yeah, you know, better hair and so forth. So you're looking for good breeders, and that has nothing to do with advertising. It existed before there was television, newspapers, or you know, scribing on the cave walls. People responded to that to procreate species. I mean, we're just meant to be born, eat enough to sexual maturity so we could procreate and die. That's perpetuation of species. Mm -hmm. I, um, you know. I, 
I, well, I, uh, I took my little girls to get, uh, I have twin daughters and, um, I think I, we talked about that, mm -hmm. wrapped, but, uh, I, I took my little girls to get haircuts mm -hmm. and, uh, we were in there and my daughter's got, my one daughter's blonde, my other, other one's a brunette and she's got, uh, like, you know, I guess natural highlights, part of her hair is blonde, it's kind of brown. And so she's sitting there getting a haircut and the lady next to her, uh, who was getting her haircut turned and she's like, uh, I said to her lady, can I get my hair to look like that? And, you know, she was in there obviously paying a lot of money to get her hair done and get highlights and the whole deal. And I kind of thought about it, and I, I was like, you know, what goes? And she goes, oh, little girl's hair get highlights. That's why women get highlights to appear younger because it's something that only happens to little girls. Right, and, right. And so that, that's where highlights came out. And uh, they were like, these ladies were tripping out. They're like, I can't believe that's her natural hair. And the lady's like, dude, that's the joys of being a four-year-old little girl, and that's why <laughs> women do it. And I literally sat back and thought, my God, so here are women spending hundreds of dollars to get their hair look like, uh, a four-year-old little girl. I'm like, we're a fucked up society, but that's what's viewed as beautiful, having cool highlights and like that kind of that hue of their hair. But um, that was uh, basically set my mind on fire. I was like, wow, this is uh, this is a trip. Well, it, it's a trip until you consider it's just the use of science to perpetuate feeling attractive, and there's nothing wrong with feeling good. We work out to feel good. I mean, it's just like saying, look, there's a car and you don't have to walk. Walking's great and a car's great, and we get into the black and white thinking that why would you want a bicycle or a car to carry you when you have two good feet? But it allows transportation, like from me to Miami's 35, 40 miles, much easier in a car than it is by foot. It's still pain by car. Well, I was going to say, it's probably faster to actually ride your bike or walk than it is to drive from your place to Miami. Yeah, yeah not, not really. I mean, it's the, the 35 or 40 miles of uh, tropics. But uh, the point being, making herself look younger, making herself feel better, maybe she's at the point in her age, married a divorce where she wants to uh, – socialize with men and that's just going to make her feel better just like people putting on war paint a couple thousand years ago for you know attractiveness or attention i mean we discussed this thing about functional movement screens in young kids you and i yeah. and um i you know I, I thought about it and i just i don't i don't like the idea first off um people can do it i mean it's it, they, they can do it if they want i just think testing kids other than like an an obstetrician testing them or something, I don't think it has a whole lot of value. And it's not that natural athletes are the better ones that need the coaching. They do need coaching. But the ones who aren't going to come along need to be given something to benefit any potential injuries or things that are going to turn them off exercise, being the last one picked in class, those sort of things. Those are the people that need to help. I mean, people go into martial arts for a simple reason to feel more secure. And you could train all your life, still never feel totally secure. You know, uh, after we, we talked, I mean, um, that was, you know, one, I want to thank you a lot for that. And just to give the, the listeners a little bit, uh, Tom and I wrapped offline on a side project and working on about, you know, what is athleticism and more importantly, how you develop it. And I just did a talk down in Atlanta actually on a what is athleticism and, um, you know, how it kind of works. And my pet project is really with, uh, you know, with these kids. And what happened was there's a guy who works and with kids that he basically assesses dysfunction in these kids and then do FMSs and uh, fix, you know, has a couple other tasks and then develops corrective movement pattern training to help them. I feel like he's young, he's six and seven, and my thought is, like, at what point, I mean, are we at the point now where we have to go back and actually fix kids, or is this kind of a, a smoke screen? And Tom and I rapped about it, and he was like, no, this is a smoke screen. Because, you know, and as you and I talked, it was, uh, one, it was enlightening, but two, um, it really kind of got me thinking in this mode of, you know, this uh, idea of late bloomers. And uh, if you really look at some of the best athletes in the world, there's this kind of universal truth of, of I was a late bloomer. I mean, you look at like J.J. Watt and, uh, uh, you know, the 
the guy's linebacker for the for the uh, for the Packers right now, who is uh, Clay Matthews. Both those guys were walk-ons and didn't develop until later on. And then you know there was another guy, I can't um, the receiver uh, for I want to say Detroit. Similar deal was like I was real gangly, I was picked last, and I kind of you know it gave me the desire to train more. And then when I grew into my body, I developed. And it was this kind of universal deal where actually, you know, people that develop a little bit later end up having a little bit better opportunity to do well. And it was, um, you know, kind of an interesting thought. And then we talked a lot about genetics being, you know, are certain people genetically more gifted at a younger age? They come wired up or they, you know, at different levels. And I think what we really kind of leveled on is this idea of maturation, that people mature at different rates. And it doesn't really matter until we get to the point where it's actually testable whether or not somebody's good or bad. Yeah, and but once again, some people were never meant to be athletes, and we we were the filter we're using is the NFL, which is some of the greatest athletes on the planet. And and if you're an NFL athlete and you marry beach volleyball player, hopefully your offspring is going to be dramatically incredible. Um, but the fact of the matter is, some people weren't meant to be athletes. Some people just need to learn to be fit. And the the talk about competitiveness and late maturation and genetics is great even amongst people with great genetics some people don't have the genetics to uh, even be competitive but they can be fit and that science has to apply downward um, and it has to trickle down where those people benefit from this science as well if only the elite athlete benefits from sports science then we've kind of missed it as a society it's like if there's a new medicine out that um, eradicates HIV, but only people who are billionaires can get it, it's severely going to limit things. Well, but the, but mm -hmm. isn't that the, the biggest problem with sports sciences? And, and this is what fucking kills me with uh, everything I read is, that, you know, it's like, oh, um, like, let's just case in point, like, look at some diet stuff. Oh, this worked because it worked with this pro bodybuilder. And you're like, well... All right, so that guy obviously's got certain genetic potential. Obviously, he's got no job because he trains all day. He's taking a mass amount of drugs. I mean, there's a lot of things that kind of perpetuate this. It's just like, you know, you can look at like um, I went out to Nike University and uh, Paul Spicer, who's the uh, who's their kind of head guy. Who I think he was from Manchester United. I mean, he's you know talking about all this training they're doing and these great advancements that are coming out. And I'm like, dude, you're at Nike University with endless amounts of money. You're working with the best athletes in the world, like. You know, like, uh, how can that validate anything other than this work? I mean, everything works with the best athletes. I mean, yep, I, anything I, works. Yeah, I mean, I, I played with guys who came out of hit programs, Olympic lifting. I mean, uh, I played with guys that didn't even lift weights that were just genetically gifted uh, yep. to be able to come play. So uh, I think really the mark of, of something is don't tell me about your best, tell me about your worst, you know, or right. tell me about the person that nobody wants that, you know, was the last kid picked and I put him in this system and then the kid flourished and now he gets an opportunity to go out there and do something amazing. And I think part of the, part of what we run into is just, you know, naturally by, uh, you know, whether it be hardwired or whatnot, like, you know, we talked about, you know, people are always going to look for the most beautiful, like the, the best mover and people are always going to look at that 0.001%. And right. then they're going to try to glean something out of it instead of being like, nah, dude, that's, you know, like, <laughs> you could basically put the, like, lock that guy in a cage and let him do nothing, and he's still going to get where he got, you know? Well, I mean, and you also, you have to look at, like you said, the whole team. You have a whole team, say, they're riddled with shoulder injuries, and they move from, say, a bench press to uh, parallel bar dips in a season, and the shoulder injuries go down 20%. Okay. Now, you apply it to another team. 
shoulder injuries go down. Oh, now we're starting to talk about some evidence. There's a million other things. How was their season? What was the weather? What was the coaching like? What were, but th those are the things that make sense. Most great athletes are great in spite of their training, not the cause of their training. Sure. But the coaching at the final thing is probably as we went back to more psychological and physical where, you know, you, you have the right proper talk, someone who builds confidence in you. I, I go back to boxing, and you could take a guy out of the Olympics who has an incredible record, and you could put him against a 27-2 and two fighter, and he's going to get cooked on his first phase. One, he's going to be so nervous, pro fight, you know, TV, whatever, pay-per-view. And he's just – the guy with a 27-3 and three record is so much more mature, psychologically, mentally, the whole thing, that this talent – could be a Sugar Ray Leonard is going to get cooked. What they do to Sugar Ray Leonard? They gave him probably about eight or ten tomatoes. Did they really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. And that's Angelo Dundee. That's smart. What, yeah, get yeah. the fear out of you. Get confident in the ring. Get confident with people. Get confident with guys betting on you, mob guys. Get confident with that atmosphere and let yourself mature in the ring. That's good management. You don't say, listen, this guy was 200 and no as an amateur. And then you get a guy who's like, you know, small amateur record, fought pro to eat, and he's 27 and three. And you put him in a ring with a guy who has to pay his mortgage on that fight. You got to be kidding me. Yeah. You got to be. You really got to be kidding me. So that's where the psychology of coaching. There's nothing Angelo Dundee did in terms of like squats and push-ups and sit-ups and running that was magical. Muhammad Ali, he he changed his diet because his hands were hurting him from from red meats to fish, and it helped the inflammation a bit. And then he found a surgeon, I guess, the way he shot cortisone in his hands, they, they helped his hands. And he chopped wood in eastern, I think it was eastern Pennsylvania in his camp, which is an old thing, develop rotational force. He didn't have all the crap we do now, and he, he chopped wood before the second Kenny Orton fight. And and that was that all goes back to Jack Dempsey and guys would chop wood, rotational force transference of you know ground through the upper body, stiffening of the torsos. Doctor Stu McGill would say, yeah. and, and and but it works. See, he didn't know why. So but old, old fighters used to chop wood, so that's what he did. To, and he got in tremendous shape for that second fight. Just Kenny Norton was a very awkward opponent for Ali, but there wasn't there wasn't much science. But they they kind of kept what worked, and they knew well, what worked was was aerobics and things and body work. You know, at that time, yeah. What was up with the uh, the road work? And, and this is something that I never could figure out because it seems like if you look at like developing, uh, yeah, I mean, is it creating an aerobic base? But like I, I always thought that a lot of that road work kind of mentality was more like well, my dad did road work, uh, you know, the trainer did road work. We've done everybody's always done road work, so you have to be able to go out and do it to be a good fighter. And I, I just I I could never understand it because you see Ali and those guys did do that late in their career. Um, yeah, they they still ran. I mean, Mom and Ali ran. In Zaire against George Foreman, he started – the fight was going to be for pay-per-view like 2 or 3 in the morning, American time. So he was running at 2 or 3 in the morning. That was one to see that smart coaching. It isn't scientific. It's just smart. And um, he was running at that time. And he'd do a lot of his running backwards because he fought going backwards. He went a few guys that could step back and throw a power punch. Um the long distance of aerobic base is the bottom of the pyramid. There's there's no getting away from that. And even during a soccer season or football season, the guys get injured because they're tired at the end of the season, but their aerobic capacity is diminishing towards the season. Their ability to recover is diminishing. And it's going to be the base of the pyramid. Now, the one guy to start to change at was a trainer named Mackie Shilston who trained Michael Spinks. Michael Spinks moved up light heavyweight to heavyweight. Michael Spinks had bad knees, so the distance was getting to him, and he would walk around between fights at 200 but fight at 176. 
So he put him on weight training, put him on proper nourishment of adequate protein and away from like rice and beans and other crap. And um, not that that's bad. It's just the time the guy didn't have, he came from East St. Louis. He wasn't eating the best diet. And um, with a weight training, he put him on a more of a sprinting program. So they do 880s, 440s, 220s, and so forth. And he'd wrap the run in knee braces too because his knees were shot and they were declining during that period. But he got him up to 195, 202, I think 210 might have been his highest at that time. And um, he got him away from the distance. So they, well, so then we have to assume distance is bad and sprints are better. And of course, that's black and white thinking. And we have to understand that, that distance is part of the formula and, and shorter runs are also part of the formula, very specific to boxing. The old timers would get their anaerobics by fighting a lot. Some of these guys would fight once a month. Go back and look at the records. See how many fights they had. Yeah. Archie Moore had like 400 fights, something like this. He had to fight like <laughs> once a month. Some of that stuff mental, mental too, though, right? I mean, I remember uh, reading an article with um, an interview with Mike Tyson, and he was talking about how he would get up. He felt like if he got up at like 3 or 4 a.m. and ran some tremendous amount of distance like every day, that his opponent wasn't doing that, and that somehow gave him – like this advantage to where when he got to the ring, he already knew that he had put in more work and was more prepared, regardless of his, you know, his his genetics and his strength. Like he just felt that, you know, kind of getting up early and putting in that work every single day somehow made him better than whoever it was he was going to face. Yeah, absolutely. If you're doing something someone else isn't doing, hopefully it gives you that edge that he's incapable of doing this. So you have to start believing your own publicity or your own training. And Castiamato trained, you know, Mike Tyson, better part of his career, mentored him, adopted him, I think. Yeah. It, was, it was a masterful trainer philosophically, you know, um, and, and um, he, he taught him a lot of basically the squared off stance, what we see in MMA, of hips almost square instead of leading so much with the left and eliminating your, your targets that way, of, of you know, leveraging uh, hooks and uppercuts from that position, of, of the peekaboo style, aggressive defense, things like that. Um, he was just the perfect computer to put the software into, and it worked. <laughs> right. Uh, we're talking about going back to Jack Dempsey. I mean, that was his whole thing, right? Coming out black shorts, black mm -hmm. shoes, no socks. Yep. Well, didn't you tell me a story about Dempsey? Didn't he uh, go to the bar and put money on the bar? And, uh, and yeah, that's how he ate. That's how he ate. But Jack Dempsey, <laughs> by estimates, had over 100 fights before he entered the prize fighting ring. He would uh, go pick apples or fruit all day. He'd do some calisthenics. He had a brother who was his manager, I believe, if my history is correct, and they'd go to the bar and they'd say, I could beat any man here. And he would, they, they would have a fight, and they'd, they'd, you know, he, that's how he made money in the evening. And he lived in hobo jungles, and he hopped freights. And um, that's and he wrote it all down, believe it or not. And then he, later on, he had trainers and so forth, um, and he wrote this stuff down and wrote, composed a book, which is – of a high value, of a high historical value, certainly. But but he trained. Old, there was no weight training at the time. They'd pick up rocks and stuff. He lifted, he shoveled things. He worked in coal mines, and he did push-ups, and he did straight-legged sit-ups, and, and, and he did pull-ups, and he hit the bag. And uh, before there was a payoff press, I have a picture of Robert Conrad and Van Williams. So we have James West and the Green Hornet, um, Britt Reed. Using cables, they used to punch with cables from a wall behind them. What core stability, payoff press. Amazing these guys were doing this in the 60s, and now it's part of functional fitness 
in 2015. I mean, it's insanity. Jack Dempsey was doing this crap. They were throwing medicine balls. I mean, I, I, I find it hilarious that everyone's reinvented this and they come out dressed like a Radio Shack employee to show it to you on little clips to <laughs> you get your email. I mean, it's 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 like, oh well, look what here's how this is going to. This is the one movement. It's going to help your low back. And I, okay, well, I'm, I'm in the biggest city. It is the rest of my clicking on. And the guy's doing a payoff press. And I'm like, hold on a second. I pull up the picture I have on my desktop of Jack Dempsey doing the same thing in like you know 1940 or whatever the hell it was. It, it's it's uh, it, it's pretty. There's nothing new. How yeah. we refine it and how we apply it is better. And then that only Jack Dempsey was doing it. The guy down the street wasn't doing it. So now the guy down the street says, you know. My doctor told me I'm a little bit weak here and I want to strengthen this up. He said, oh, okay, let's try this out and see if it works for you. At least have the knowledge. That's what the Internet has done. It's, it's spread knowledge. The bad problem is it gives too much bad knowledge and it makes, um, it, it makes it hard for discern without the proper filtering process or ability to understand science, basic physics, and things like that. Here we go. <laughs> Here we go. John, oh, my God. I can know Jay Welly. Just well, the ears perked up. Ah, uh, no, no, it, it's um, what's what makes me laugh is uh, like nothing really changes. It just gets repackaged. Like um, you know, I, I remember you know as a young kid, I mean, training at Zangus's place and him talking about his buddy Bill Starr and uh, you know the the, the strongest shall survive and like you know the you know like a lot of the the, the, the information in there and it wasn't until you later that I actually got the book and I looked and I was like, oh, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, you can still take that information. I'm firmly convinced that certain people go back and take those books and then reskin them or try to put up these new training programs. And I look and I'm like, that looks so familiar. And, uh, you know, it, it just, I don't know, man. It, 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 it's good and it's bad because I guess, um, you know, things get stale so then people bring in, they refresh them. You know, they give it a new spin that gets people in to do stuff. But, uh, I mean, all, all the time, I mean, we, you know, put out numerous programs. And I, I was just down at this uh, the deal in Atlanta I was talking about, and this uh, this guy came over to me, and he was, like, tripping out because he thought that the uh, the rotational work that we do where, uh, you know, we usually – or I years ago we started using, like, a, a hard med ball, and we would throw it against a, uh, a brick wall and start working on some transverse, like some rotation square up and then throw it. And then part of the deal was that the reactiveness of the ball would actually bring it. You had to catch and then rotate back into the throw. Mm -hmm. And he was like, he, he told me that uh, the five-way med ball work that we've been doing completely changed his ability to do everything. I mean, he's like, uh, he's like that alone, that I can actually point to that one set of movements. And then he's like, you know, where did you invent that? Right. And I, I like kind of like looked at him and was like, I, I like in my closet I, eight weeks ago. Yeah, I, I was like, well, I was zinging around. I was thinking about re reactive force. I looked at him and was like, actually, um, I, you know, 25 years ago, we were using that through this thing, Tunch Jilkins, Tunches Punches. I mean, it's like, you know, and I think that's where I'm. I mean, I, you know, Tom, I'm sure you're the same way. But like when people ask me, I'm very forthright and honest and being like, I didn't admit any of this shit. Like. I'm going to tell you exactly where I took this from and where I was in my life when I used it and the very effect that it had on me and why I'm using it on you. Like right now we're doing uh, uh, in our uh, field strong program, uh, we, I, I have been doing six weeks of uh, the Nebraska metabolic conditioning cycles uh, mm. circuits that, you know, that uh, Boyd Epley and those guys developed because they felt that tens with 60 seconds rest would cause, you know, better growth hormone response. And it was this big testing thing they used in Nebraska. So we used it in college, and all I did is I went and 
remembered and like did it myself and realized all the shortcomings and you know I, this worked and this and there was no loading. I mean, it, I basically just reskinned it into a way that was uh, actually had some progression and then it, I changed up some of the movements to being you know basically uh, free weight movements instead of using some machines. So you can and, do it uh, in a yeah, garage. Yeah, yeah. So you can do it in a garage and then how to like how to load it and all the mistakes that we made doing it. I just basically just wrote it like, hey, do it this way. These are all the mistakes I made and literally uh, like. I mean, email after email, oh, my God, I put on probably 10 pounds of body weight. Uh, one of the girls that we trained as a sprinter, she was here this morning. And, dude, she's down a couple pounds. And I, I even asked her, I was like, how much you weighing? She's like, I'm actually down a few pounds. I'm like, really? And she got this, like, nervous look on her face. I'm like, dude, you are probably the most muscular I've ever seen you. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I mean, we saw her today. We were kind of tripping out. And um, she's like, you think it's the training? I'm like, no, it's well, of course it's the fucking training. Like, you do nothing. You don't change anything. We, we put you in a new training program, and all of a sudden you put on four or five pounds of muscle. I'm pretty sure it's a training. But, like, when people ask me, I'm always like, yeah, I didn't invent this stuff. I'm just, I'm just basically taking you through my own uh, Disneyland of training and trying to show you all the good rides and how to fucking miss all the pitfalls and how to get to where we want to go at the end just faster instead of fucking yourself up the way I did. And, um, but you know, unfortunately a lot of people aren't forthright and they try to pretend like they invented this shit and that's what drives me crazy. So in long short, Denny, the reason I get pissed about this stuff is the fact that people are not truthful about this stuff. And it's like, dude, like you said, man, 40 years of 50, 60, 70 years ago, you have guys doing these things. And now they're trying to come out with, oh, I invented this. I'm like, you're full of shit. You bought some old fucking muscle mags off of the internet. <laughs> yeah, it works. It works, yeah. you know. <laughs> so well, they truly believe it, and it's just ignorance, you know, or un, they're just uneducated. I firmly believe um, I can't go with that anymore because I okay. believe the internet and fitness is probably uh, right now has the deepest pool of charlatans I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's unreal. Like, I mean, just, just some of the diet stuff we've been seeing, it's like, uh, like now there's this big thing that I'm sure Tommy's seen the, uh, if it yeah. fits my macros, yeah, if it fits my macros, which is just, uh, oh, you know, it, it's all about this, uh, macronutrient ratio. And I'm like, didn't we fucking monkey stomp that with Barry Sears in the zone? Well, you know, what's funny is, is before that, when Mike Menser was training for a contest, he put up a little bit of his diary. You know, went in in the morning, did a set of leg, you know, two sets of leg extensions, two sets of squat, two sets of leg, right, whatever. Then he came home and it, it would say something like fruit tart, a uh, glass of juice. Then he ran in a parking structure across the street, you know, up the hills. And then he came back and had a dinner and he just put calories matched. And he was eating like fruit tarts, you know, and well, a couple things. He had a very good anabolic schedule. He had incredible genetics mm -hmm. and you know, in, in ample use of amphetamine based on everyone who was around him. And um, it, it, it's, it's, so it's a misnomer that people can get away with a lot. You can get – I heard Bill Rogers run, won four Boston marathons on his very first marathon with smoking a cigarette at the starting line. I don't know if that's true. I've heard that, but it certainly bears the witness that for professional athletes smoke. There's pictures of guys smoking in the benches in 1960s, like um, when, Johnny Unitas, I think, I, I believe, or Bart Starr, one of them. When I went to the Eagles, uh, I played in an old veteran stadium. We had ashtrays in our lockers. There you go. That, that is a, it isn't good for your sports, but if you can tolerate it, we're not going to really argue with the point. So, so a lot of people who um, are very competent can get away with murder and not get hurt and some people can get it just once they could smoke for five years and set themselves up for a lung disease 
And I, I don't, the same thing goes with exercise, same thing goes with nutrition. Some people have to be on a very measured program most of their life or they're gonna have a B, they come from a beast background and it's, it, it's uh, their, their, their upbringing about eating and food and the psychology around food, uh, their desire that that's where you go if you have problems and you have depression and so forth are derived from food and, and their genetics are gonna, it, it's gonna be a little bit tougher. And, and so for them to go out and say, oh, it's pig out day, I'm going to eat two pizzas and stuff, that's probably like taking an alcoholic to a bar and getting them drunk. It's just a terrible thing. And say, as long as it fits within my macros, I mean, you can get down to Skittles. I mean, there's my carbs for the day. Um, is yes. it going to hurt? It's less of a problem the more active and more athletic you are. Sure. But for the average person, it, if, if you're only eating 1,800 calories per day, then the Skittles are going to take up a lot of it. That's probably not the best source of polyphenols and nutrients and, you know, dense sources of fiber and things. So. Well, I mean, but, but that's, I mean, I, I think that's the fight that, uh, you know, we've been fighting this on, like, yeah, if it fits my macros, but that, uh, you know, like it doesn't give you a license to eat like an asshole. And, right. uh, you know, we run into this all the time. It's like, oh, instead of, you know, like uh, I decided to have, uh, fucking pop tarts and tang or or uh, Kool Aid instead of like you know doing this on this side and it's like well you know food quality doesn't matter and like that's a new fight I just I I, I thought we stomped that out uh, years ago and I remember uh, Tom Inkledon who's um, uh, yeah I remember Tom yeah 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 human uh, human performance specialist I've, I've worked with Tom for geez almost 15 years now and uh, he's done my blood and he's worked with just about every professional athlete he used to write in this and um, you know he's like I have blood work on thousands of athletes that pair with their diets and those that eat a higher quality diet of real foods opposed from like fucking crap and something you know, this and uh, you know he's like dramatically different blood work I have guys that have had blood, blood work they eat a better food quality will always be healthier and reduce factors for sickness illness uh, you know diabetes uh, cancer I mean all of these markers that he tests for so, like, what drives me a little crazy is then you see people like, well, if it fits my macros, and I'm like, dude, it, like, I don't give a fuck if you, there is no ma magical balance of macronutrient ratio that will protect you from this stuff, and, and there's no way to outbalance or outmacro a, uh, you know, a bad diet, and it just, I don't know, man, it just seems like every couple of years this stuff kind of, like, comes secular, and then it comes back, and then we fight it, and we stomp it down. It, it um, goes, or, John, it's like what? We talk about just uh, keeping like the training simple, right? Like simple doesn't sell, sexy sells. Yeah. And it sounds so obvious when you're, you know, when just what you said, like he goes, man, I, I you know, Inkladon's got this, you know, he's got this information that if you if you eat better, you'll be healthier. And that's yeah, so no, it's obvious that well, well, you it's, eat better, it's, you're gonna be fucking healthier. But people people don't want to believe that, or they gotta yeah. make it fucking more than what it really is. Well, it, it's like I I just um. Uh, rap with Stu McGill last week. He sent me his new back, uh, new book called the, the Back Mechanic, and I went through it, and it's like so insightful and so basic and so smart. And so we got on a call and I'm rapping with him about. It. He said, "What'd you think?" I'm like, "Doc, it, it's really excellent. It makes a lot of sense. I love it. Uh, it's never gonna sell." <laughs> and he was yeah. like, and, and he he kind of like got quiet. He's <laughs> like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Doc, I'm like, there's nothing revolutionary. You're talking about lift some weights, walk a little bit, you know, like." walk around barefoot, you know, do, you know, work some rotation, lift some weights, do something once a week that you don't normally do. Like if you ride your bike all the time, walk, if you walk all the time, ride your bike, mm -hmm. you know, like it was this like, and I even told him, I'm like, doc, this is, it's, it's so middle of the road, non-crazy person and non-polarizing that everybody should do this stuff. 
but unfortunately, like we live in a in a time where we're so inundated by information coming through, and we're like that the only thing we notice is the most polarizing, craziest shit. And you're putting out something that is so intelligent, middle of the road, and smart that people are gonna miss it. Yeah, the mass marketing. Yeah, the mass and everybody marketing. will get fucking hurt. Right, and they'll come to him with like, man, I got all this massive back pain. Well, like, that's I why told you what to do. That's why they call Stu. Uh, so, so I, I always heard about Stu McGill in the NFL. He's like the Indiana Jones of back pain. Like, <laughs> like, like a guy would. Uh, I swear to God, a guy would hurt his back, uh, like in the NFL. And I played with a guy that hurt his back, and they were like, ooh, we have to take him to see Stu McGill. And like Stu McGill was like always this like legendary boogeyman that you're like going to take you away, and he would figure out what was wrong with you. And it wasn't, and I never had a back injury. Uh, and I remember when I finally did rap with Stu, we were kind of talking about it, and he knew a lot of guys I knew, and then we, he was talking about me, and then I told him all the stuff I had been doing, and he's like, well, that's great. That's why you never came to see me, because you were actually doing this stuff. And then, uh, so we were just kind of laughing a little bit about it, but, like, NFL, Major League, any type of professional sports, if there's any type of back injury, they rush them off to, to Stu McGill, and he gets the, he has all that information. So, I mean, that guy is is so ahead of the curve on, you know, like this stuff that he is the foremost expert on, on kind of like back injury and how to avoid it. And you know what his favorite thing to do is? Chop wood. Yeah. And, and here's the funny thing is, true, he sees the worst end result of some of the biggest, toughest humans on the planet. So I had this discussion recently is, is if, if a person, you have a, here, he'll jump. Here's a little jumping thought. A gynecologist who sees women over 50 will note that a lot of them have thyroid problems hormonally. They start Their thyroid starts to tank, okay? So the assumption could be in is most people have thyroid problems. Well, that's, that's incorrect. It's the people you see have thyroid problems. Stu McGill seeing pro athletes with bad backs from extreme trauma, you know, the highest genetic and sportive level on the planet, and seeing them hurt their backs, and, and, and he made the one statement I do like that he made, that he said the strongest people often have, you know, the strength is no indication of preventing back pain. Endurance, maybe. Like he said, chopping wood. Get a guy who works in an office, and he goes home, and he lives out in the country a bit, and he chops wood, may never have a back problem. And when, when he... You could tend to be overcaught, and he admits this himself, but being overly cautionary because he sees the end results of a guy who has a million-dollar contract on the line, a bad back, and his deadlift was 600 pounds at the beginning of the season. Now he can't tie his shoes. So that, that, that's a filter that's going to change his perspective as well. And, and his, I like his advice. I like his book. I like all his books and material and interviews, and I've read them extensively and so forth. And And – but it's still a filter he's going to go through, and people would disagree with him. They wrote that article, I think, ended up, unfortunately, on T Nation, Brad um, Schroeder and Schoenfeld, and Brad Contreras about crunches aren't going to hurt you. There's as much data to say bending side to side or twisting is going to hurt you as abdominal flexion, and you're dealing with uh, poor sign dead spines in flexion versus humans who are still alive. And they both they both talked about the study, and they said, if anything, we produced this study, and, and Stu's going to like it. And he said, I did like it. And we would sit around and debate this all day, but it's a little bit more sensible approach to the whole back abdominal core conditioning philosophy. It's, it's, it's less of a critical view in terms of the expensive athletes getting hurt, and I see a lot of expensive hurt athletes. It, it's going to 
we're all going to be prejudiced. We're all going to have our filters, and that's that's the filter he's looking through. Doesn't undermine his work, which I think is incredible. So you know, Mo, uh, there, there were a couple of real interesting things I always noticed about guys with back injuries, and one is um, a lot of the guys that had a lot of back injuries, and I, I don't know if it was, you know, the one was the cause or it was a result of maybe you know something. But a lot of the guys that obviously let themselves get out of shape all of a sudden ended up with this kind of uh, anterior pelvic tilt, so they were always hyper overextended. And then from that extended position, you could watch guys when we were running all of a sudden put their hands on their hips and push their bellies out and get in this extended position. Uh, and then the other one is, and then once they got tired, the back injury usually resulted from some form of dynamic rotation. Like obviously you're, you know, you're setting back as an offensive lineman and the guy speed rushes you and your hips and feet are facing one way and then you have to rotate and then a guy, and then as you're rotating, you get loaded. And uh, I watched... Uh, guys for years, like as soon as they did that, I was like, oh, the back's going to hurt. And like it was night and day, like Trey Thomas, who I played with, always had a, a janky back, and it was always this thing where his gut was too big, and his low back got real tired, and he was out of shape, and then all of a sudden there'd be some form of loading, and his low back would like pop, and he'd have issues. Um, you know, uh, Kyle Turley ended up happening to him, and all the guys I played with that had back injury, it was always this idea of they got tired, they overextended, and then they got caught in some rotation. And uh, so then for me, I always thought, like, all right, well, one, I'll never be out of shape. Two, I'm going to constantly uh, avoid being overextended. And then the other one is I'm going to keep my feet in front of people. And if I ever get, you know, overly uh, overly kind of rotated that way, I'm not going to have any problems because I've done enough of that kind of, you know, side rotation we did with a lot of med ball work. So I was used to being in that position. But it was like one of those things where you just kind of see the same pattern over and over again. And now all of a sudden you think about it, you're like, well, I'm just never going to get in that pattern. And uh, it just, you know, there was just like little things that you notice. Guys with knee injuries always, you know, uh, you know, would always kind of like, you know, let their knees fall in and really couldn't drive their knees out, or they were real right. dead-footed, or they had like feet problems. Like a lot of the guys mm -hmm. with uh, real flat feet that would let their their arches collapse because they let their knees come in. I mean, you just see all these things over, you know, and you play for, you know, ten years in college, uh, high college, and you know, start noticing all of these things. And then the funny thing is, people ask you like, well, how did you avoid it? I'm like, dude, I saw it. And then more importantly, uh, what was even more surprising is when I talked to guys about it, they never noticed any of this shit. And then that's kind of when I realized, I'm like, oh, I, I must be a little bit different. So yeah, I, I, I walk down, I walk down the street noticing this in people. Go on walks, and I'll look at people walking and say, okay, that one had an ankle injury. Look how much that one's bent over. Got some thoracic issues there, and then cervical issues. And you see the way people use their hands, arms, stand externally internally rotate their feet hips i mean i it's that's that's like a curse i walk around and look at people like that and i also look for the genetics you'll see some people who are totally untrained and you'll see they're like incredible genetics you'll see someone going ordering burgers and they're going to get money out of their wallet and you see their tricep leap out like a like a quadricep and you go god if this person hit the gym do they realize what they're capable of and um that's part of the diagnosis that's part of the mindset you have to have when you deal with clients and that's the real science I think of fitness people say um, functional movement screen you put person through some mobility and see their restrictions and how they move that should be the data just loading down into your brain of what you're gonna do some people are gonna have a squat like nothing and then you do something else like a grip you can see a woman with a fantastic squat okay and then you're gonna get a grip and they're gonna hang from a bar so you do a pull-up no most women can't do pull-ups. It's not a sin. They're not going to hell, but they can't do pull-ups. Is their goal to do 10 pull-ups? Maybe. Would doing a pull-up probably do better for their upper body, bone strength, density, 
prevent it from breaking, strength of the, yeah. So you'd work in that direction, but just watching someone go through mobility and exercise is fantastic. And if you have someone really detrained, like you talk about it, you're dealing with athletes, athletes, athletes who are hurt. There are some obese people who should be come in when they're very out of shape and you should be hitting the hammer machines or whatever machine almost exclusively trying to teach them a squat or trying to teach them a deadlift or a clean or anything like that is, I would say is uh, contraindicated. They simply need to say, where's the strength of their knee, their knee joint, their, their hamstring? Where's the strength of this? Some people are gonna be so detrained, it's gonna be frightening. And to start them in an any position like that is, is, is really working against them. And plus, you're, what are you gonna tell a 400 pound guy? You can't squat, it's gonna embarrass them. They're embarrassed enough just getting in clothes to work out. And that's a whole different, that's a, that's a big part of society. It's not the NFL athletes. It's not the CrossFit games. It's not the MMA guys. This is the real people making the real mm -hmm. money and, and um, having real lives with real children and real, you know, families and, and groups of people. So. You know, uh, we, we had a, a guy, well, he, he hasn't trained with us for a while, but um, we had a, a guy who's an engine builder and he would kind of swap out and do some work on our trucks and different stuff because we're into, you know, obviously cars and trucks and different things. Mm -hmm. And so he would come in and train with us and uh, uh, he was, you know, probably 320 pounds. But the thing that always blew me away is as he would go to sit down about four inches above the seat, he would just pull the fucking ripcord and just yep. collapse. And yep. I and I remember years ago in one of my uh, college classes, I'm talking about like the what was it, it was the neurological uh, like the inability neurologically as people age to be able to control their body weight into something like obviously sit down. And I watched him do it. It kind of drove me crazy. So we started working on just like basically just sitting to a box, yep. like being able to control himself, touch, not release, and be able to stand back up. And he ended up getting pretty good. We ended up using some like 20 pound chains so he could get his hands out in front of him, and then we moved to a safety squat bar. And then uh, we ended up getting a belt squat machine so he could, you know, kind of load him a little bit because his back was hurting. And I, I remember, uh, you know, and this is kind of one of the, the things we talk about at our seminar, you know, and it's like, you know, you have what you, like the idea, the template. And I think that's why, you know, programs are sometimes dangerous and templates are better. Like, I need you to squat now. I need you to do the best version of the squat you can. Somebody yeah. might be able to snatch, clean, and jerk. Somebody else might be able to back squat, front squat, and I'm like, you know, what happens if those people can't do that? You know, like, what's the what's the walk? What's the deal? And I think where we really run into a lot of problems, and you know, people really kind of got away from this is like, instead of you trying to put all these people in the model that you have, you need like almost like a, a template to be able to look and say, okay, this is what I need them to do. Now I need to find them the most meaningful way that I need, or I, I can get them to do the best that they can do. I mean, and it's like, you know, I knew this guy was never going to back squat. He'd never do anything. And it's like, dude, right. we got him on the aerodyne. We did a little bit of uh, conditioning. Um, he did a whole bunch of mobility work. We worked on just some basic dead bug, isostability work, um, like ball slams and doing some of these, like, you know, chained advance or chained, uh, uh, you know, a little bit of rotation. And, like, it's so basic, but I think the problem is everybody gets stuck in this idea of dogma, and it's like, well, that's not a functional movement. And I'm like, well, define functional, and functional for what? Like, that's the one that drives me fucking crazy, and I'm like, define a functional movement, because every movement that you tell me is functional, I'm going to talk to you how it's not functional, and more importantly, how something else can be functional. Well, I mean, if you build muscles and go to the beach and meet women, that's functional, okay? Um, I, I think it's hilarious. Any increase in strength or hypertrophy, any amount of leanness, is a functional for something, but um, I, you, you're, you hit on a very good point. 
And if you have a client who says, listen, no matter how I deadlift, I get a little bit of pain in my back. And you fly in the best deadlifters on earth. You need to fly in, you know, guys, and they look out, change this, change your foot press here. And he does it, and for that 1% of the time he can hit it, the rest of the time it hurts his back. So you change him to um, trap bar deadlifts. He says, oh, I feel fantastic. If he trap bar deadlifts the rest of his life, that's perfectly fine. And if all he does is box squat because it hurts his knees to back squat or hurts his back to back squat, that's perfectly fine. And if they get super strong, he's doing box squats of 500 and trap bar deadlifts for uh, 315 for 30 reps and falling on the floor and exhaustion, you're, you're developing a fine human being. And if we have to say that somehow manhood or womanhood are based on three power lifts or two Olympic lifts, that's that's absolutely insane. That that's If that's your that's – your, um, bar in life, you better be raising your bar a little bit. But I mean, I, I think that's what we're talking about is that, uh, you know, what we've seen in this kind of changing in the fitness industry is this idea of dogma. And like, I, I fucking see it all the time where, you know, uh, somebody posts a video of a squat and, oh, it's not ass to grass. And, yeah. uh, and I, I fucking <laughs> laugh because I, I have a bone chip in the back of my right knee. And so I can really only get to about maybe two inches below parallel. And yeah. like, uh, and for me to go deeper, I got to get a more vertical shin. And for me to get any type of uh, positive shin angle, like, dude, I, I can literally squat down to where that fucking doorstop is and I can feel the doorstop stop me. And I know that's where it's time to come up. And like, it's, it's, you know, uh, like, and it's, oh, well that wasn't ass to grass. And I'm like, what sport? is fucking played ass to grass. And more importantly, why why is that now the marker of everything? I watch you reach your fucking chin on a pull-up every time, and I don't say, you know what, well, actually we do, we say neutral chin or your fucking pull-up doesn't count. You fucking looking up at the sky and, you know, shortening <laughs> your pull-up by four inches is fucking bullshit. But I, I think what happens is, is people get stuck in this, uh, this dogma of, like, this is the way it is, and any type of deviation uh, somehow Nolan voids it, and uh, it fucking, like, drives me out. Not, not only does that drive me fucking crazy, but I, I just always want to know, like, what's the looking glass these people are looking at? I'm like, well, it's usually your mom's basement with you at, with you not doing anything, so it just fucking drives me nuts. Yeah, but. yeah. Well, I, I had a martial arts friend down the street. He's a Filipino, and he just said something. Oh, that position doesn't work. He said that position doesn't work. Yeah. He saw him on YouTube. He goes, "How about your position sitting there watching it? Does that position work? Because everything you're doing is sitting on your ass watching YouTube. And if you really want to come down and find out, you know, this is where I live. And you know, and he's that type of guy. He comes from that environment in the Philippines. And and uh, ask the grass. I mean, some people's hips won't do that. Period. McGill's proven yeah. that. And um, yeah, some it's other the uh, yeah, it's the Eastern European. Right, yeah, Dean, Dean Somerset has a lot of material on that, showing the differences in hips. He has a nice blog piece on that. And, and so if they do get down to that position, they're going to get flexion of the lumbar vertebrae. Yeah. And, and you know, it's not uh, if but when the lumbar vertebrae go. You may last mm -hmm. to your 60 doing those type of squats, but at the same time on your 61st birthday, say, well, I'll do a light set. We're going to go out tonight and get some steaks. And you do a light set, and that's the last squat you ever do. Boom. Yeah. So, so yeah. It's like slowly bending that branch, and eventually it just freaking breaks. Yeah, and it's 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 like um, Dirty Harry said, every man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, what what are you do, what are you doing with your time now? Um, you know, are you training people like at a at a specific facility or? No, I, I train them online. I never meet them. That's that's that's. Uh, I, I don't like it's too to personal. Out. 
It's too personal. <laughs> it's too personal. I mean, you know, for you, you got to dry, you got to dress, I got to put clothes on, I got to drive there. Take the foil off the windows. Well, yeah, you know, it's not like a, you know, got to got to find a back uh, part of a building to heat up my sterno in the morning and this stuff. Um, no, I train people online. I consult people, and most of these people know how to train. Some of them own gyms, in fact. I've got one guy who's just deadlifted six, and we're going to train him down in body weight for a uh, kettlebell competition at 200 pounds. So we're going losing 40 pounds for a training program. And um, great great clients, and the smarter the client, the easier it is. The, the, the computer geeks do the best, period. I will tell you this right now. Anyone who could do a spreadsheet, read calories, no numbers, that's the person who does the best because they're very cognizant of results and numbers. And if you see your numbers go down, you may need that back off week. If you see the calories go up, you know that's why your body weight went up. There's a very simple cause and effect. And those are the people that understand it. I have other people who can do a lot of, uh, one was doing a lot of martial arts, six days a week, three different type martial arts. And um, they were saying, oh, the weight's clinging to me. I'm saying, no, it isn't. You just eat too goddamn much. You know, you're, you're putting it in a calorie counter and lose it in your phone, and you're not counting portions. To you, a medium-sized potato is the size of a football. And so started sending me photographs of the food, and 95% of the food was, was outside food restaurant, just dictated by lifestyle and conditions in his life, which is hard to measure when you're on the road and eating out. So once we started refining that process, the body fat started to come down in this person. But for a computer geek, for me to say, what would you eat last week? They said, I ate 2,450 calories on this day. My body weight at 5 a.m. was this, and my waist measurement was this. Then we look at the numbers, plug them in. I'm going to have a birthday Friday, but I'm going to compensate on this day with a little bit of that. Okay. And those people do the best. And I find more science than that, and I do Skype the people and talk to them on the phones and so forth. None of them are local, just so happens. I have one client I train locally who's a professional, is a physician. But uh, I think training, I like training in uh, workshop type settings, training one person at a time. It gets a little boring for me. Everybody likes to get like a 20 something guy who's going to be a pro athlete or MMA guy because you could just beat them to death and they come back the next day even stronger. And that's, that's just a blast to see how hard you can push them and see the results, you kind of live vicariously through that stuff. But um, that's, that's primarily what I would do. I'm writing more in a series that I wrote with uh, Armor of War. I did a frequently asked question. I'm going to do one more on the uh, core muscles. It's going to be from uh, skull to groin and uh, assessing that historically and mechanically and what works and basically what my ideas are and include a little bit in there about what the process of the, the first energy law, eating less calories and getting less fat on your body, which I guess no one's heard of in America. <laughs> Did you invent that, Tom? So wait a minute. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Diet? Wait a minute. So if you work out and you eat less than you're and then then you're actually the calories that you're expending, you'll lose body mass and no. potentially body Shock, fat. Shocking, isn't it? Shocking. No, it's fucking crazy talk. I don't buy that. I always love it when people say, and I say people outside the fitness field because we're talking within this. This, this gang of thieves here, but um, they'll say, oh, I lost 20 pounds. And purpose everyone in the room, well, how'd you do it? I'm like, like there's a mystery to that. You you, you idiots, you. No, 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 no. Uh, my brother, uh, when he, like, I, you know, he 
was bigger, you know, played football, and he died down. He was about 230, and then he started training with us, and all of a sudden he got down to, like, 210. I think he lost, like, you know, 20 pounds, and he was looking great. And everybody would stop him, and they thought he was sick. They were like, yeah. oh, my God, are you sick? And he's like, why? He's like, well, you've lost weight. And he, like, after a while was kind of like, man, all these people thought I had cancer or something was wrong with me, and they were like, oh, my God, it's something wrong with Ed. And uh, they're like, you know, finally he's like, the only way that people lose weight or do something is if something dramatic happens to them and they have to make this lifestyle shift, or they got so sick they were in the hospital and couldn't eat themselves and they lost 20 right. pounds. But uh, he was, like, tripping out, and he was like, man, this is uh, this is scary that the only way people know how to lose weight is if something dramatic or if you get cancer or something happens to you. Other than that, everybody just keeps putting on weight and getting bigger. And bigger. Well, people ask me that. They'll say, you know, they'll say, well, what's the fast way to lose weight? i got a wedding coming up. And, I mean, it's it's amputation or chemotherapy usually work well. <laughs> uh, and you're going to get very sick or you're going to lose a body part. I mean, that's your options. You're going to get very ill, not be able to hold down food, and you're going to feel miserable. And people get the flu and lost weight. They say, oh, at least I lost 10 pounds. I mean, there's a trade-off. Flu kills amazing amounts of people every year. So you got what is considered a deadly disease even in this country. And and, and that's your method of losing weight. Uh, right. cool. it, it's just we have so much variety. We have abundance. I mean, that's a good thing. We have abundance. We have amazing farming techniques, distribution. I mean, I, used to, I was describing a time in the 60s and 70s when – you didn't eat certain foods. You said, well, did you eat a lot of strawberries? I said, occasionally in the summer. Why? I said, well, they weren't in the source. You went to A&P store in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and there was no strawberries in December. Are you kidding me? You had things like cabbage. You know, you had potatoes and cabbage, and that's what you ate in that time. And then when the people had gardens, but when springtime would come around, you get more fruits and vegetables. There was a time where it would not be a nectarine in the store. Now yeah. you're tripping over them. So that's completely changed. Our access to cheap food is incredible right now. So, I mean, yeah. Oh, I, I, I said one question. Um, like I told, like I, I think we wrapped up. My wife's pregnant with a little boy. I have, I've been polling every intelligent person I know. Uh, circumcision or no circumcision? Oh, circumcised, sure. Okay, circumcised. Well, well, I, well I John, you, you know, you guys know it's a boy. Yeah, yeah, we found out where we're having a boy, but uh, I started kind of going online because I realized at some point I'm going to have to make this decision about circumcision versus no circumcision. And uh, I've read, like, the most compelling arguments on both sides. Yeah, for and against. Right? Uh, yeah, for and against. And uh, I, like, you know, obviously, you know, uh, most probably people raised in this country, most adult males, I mean, at this point are circumcised. I think we only know a few people that right. aren't. But uh, it's really only an American thing, and, like, I, I, I really – other than, I, yeah, I, so I'm kind of like, we, we've been talking about it. I'm like, what do you guys think? And uh, it's turned into this little thing. Because yeah, it's start... like a physical and a so, there's like a social, social. aspect to well, it. I believe it's and, more uh... social than physical. Well, but here's, here's my hack. issue. You've been so... saying, I listen to arguments on both sides, which which is valid because your 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 process is appropriate. But do you sit down and go on PubMed and see the preponderance of evidence for or against it in terms of uh, of uh, pediatric uh, urologist and see what the what the value of it is and prevention, yeah. disease control, and so forth? Uh, um, it's it's not that high. I mean, it might have been a long time ago, but the one that was most compelling to me is they have probably uh, 100,000 times more instances of the doctor fucking up and, like, disfiguring or, or you know, like deforming. basically, you know, like, nicking and, and, like, disfiguring the kids more than they have of, like, oh, there was an infection we had yeah, it was funny. Is I, I delivered both my kids. I have uh, two male, 
And um, the first one was, I, we did it at home. Second one, the doctor left, so the nurse and I delivered the second one. The first one was at home with the midwife. The midwife, you know, didn't work, worked outside the opera, worked within an insurance program, but worked outside of doctors. She had a backup doctor in case of emergencies. So um, they had a moil. Now, I raised a Roman Catholic. Didn't even, I knew what a moil was, but a moil came to the house, and you paid him cash. He does three a day. This guy makes a great living. And a moil circumcises your child. And it's pretty interesting from the standpoint of how he does it. And he's so good at it, so good at it, that um, it's better than the um, pediatric um, urologist doing it. Sure. And so if that's an option you're worried about disfigurement, find out about a moil locally, have it done, do what he says, follow up with your pediatrician, and have it done at home. And that's as simple as that. Oh, that's an option. That's an option. And they're very good about it, and they're very, like, reverent about it. They're very respectful of the, the mother and child, and, you know, and, and immediately after the uh, circumcision, they, they move them to nursing and so forth. Is the mother ready because she needs the nurse to calm the child down? And you calm them down with a swab of um, kosher wine on gauze in their mouth. True. Huh. I'm, I'm on Craigslist right now. I found one for you. Oh, good. There you go. So, yeah. so, so you're pro-circumcision then? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm pro-circumcision all the way. I'm, I'm all about Western medicine. I love Western medicine. So, John, you're saying that, like, when you started researching that, you found out it was less, more, or it was, uh, it wasn't so much about, like, preventing infection. It was more of just, like, this social... Well, well, no, uh, I think that was the more, more personal. Well, well, like, where, oh, okay, so so uh, there was a big push in this country, and actually the guy who was the big uh, proponent behind it is uh, was Dr. Kellogg, the guy that invented, I think, uh, Kellogg's and, and uh, cornflakes. Oh yeah, it goes and, back. And, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so he was kind of, or he's a complete fucking whack job, but he believed that uh, sex was like the root of all evil. Claimed to never have sex himself. Adopted like forty six children, and like um, you know, basically like convinced them all to be, uh, you know, abstain from sex, and, and he felt that uh, mutilating the genitalia would actually stop men from, like, masturbating and also from having sex. At one point, there was a big deal where they were using uric acid to circumcise uh, or to, like, basically destroy, like, women's uh, sensitivity, gen yeah, sensitivity mm -hmm. genitalia, and um, he was, like, the big proponent of it, and they ended up getting it kind of hooked on insurance where... They were doing it as an add-on at delivery, where all of a sudden they would just get it snipped up, and it was like a hundred, two hundred dollar add-on. So it became kind of this cultural deal that they really pushed on, and it became kind of an insurance and way for doctors to make money. And also, it was this kind of idea that sex was bad. And I, the, the one compelling one is I read a couple instances, uh, first count events of guys that had not been circumcised and had to be circumcised later in life. And, yeah, Robert uh, Blake was one of them. He talked about it on Johnny yeah. Carson show. Huh. Yeah, and how he's like, honestly, uh, after the before and after, he's like, you circumcised guys have no fucking idea what sex was really like. And it was the I mean, almost the point where they're like, the guy, the account I read was like, uh, you know, sex is obviously not as interesting as it was to me. But um, the in today's, you know, state of where we are, I, I really couldn't find a compelling argument in terms of like a physical health, like, you know, mm -hmm. this is dirty. No, there's a reduction in yeah. disease and the warmth yeah. of the area underneath the foreskin supposedly can foster things, virus, yes. bacteria, and so forth. Uh, I, it's just, to me, it's the simplest operation. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's archaic. We argue things about vaccines and, and, and circumcisions when I think they have a pretty good record. And yeah. everybody, now, people have to, I'll tell you what. Soccer moms have too much goddamn time on their hands to look at this stuff. And 
Now we have German measles coming back. Uh, bubonic plague's always shown up in a few fleas. We've got diseases that were conquered my father's time coming back. A whooping cough. I didn't even know what whooping cough was. I was born in 1957. I got a whooping cough vaccine. Didn't know what it was. Mom, Dad, what's whooping cough? And they said, well, it's this type of thing. It's coming back. This is because people, there's one reason. People are stupid. They don't understand evidence. And it's it's just abysmal. And that part scares me about society more than we're, we're producing more people. We're producing um, better abundance, better science, better medicine. But people are too stupid to use it. I know. I keep, I read things uh, locally around here, like uh, cases with the measles and stuff. And I'm like, man, did it, doesn't, don't we get like, Immunized with that uh, when we're Yeah, now German measles like, rubella was handled years ago. That was I had measles when I was like a chicken pox, which yeah. is now they had. I had my kids were immunized against. They had um, a measles. I th I had them, but but you know they can be um, deadly. And the whooping cough, like I said, I never heard of that. We're getting diseases yeah. from from immigration, part of it, and and which we have no control over now. But we're getting it because moms choose. They read an article. Some guy said in the science, I'm sorry, is there either you understand science or you don't. And it isn't anecdote. It isn't my cousin's brother got this. That's anecdote. If people speak of anecdote, I, I just tune them out and walk away. They're just not, not smart enough to deal with. You'll never cure it. You'll never fix it. My big issue, and, and this was the only issue when uh, when we had our little girls, you know, I think my one daughter at like was born at like right around five and a half. My other daughter was born around, no, she was five and a half and six and a half, and then they lost some weight. They came in and wanted to give them like 20 injections, and I remember looking at the doc and being like, you're not going to stick my kid with all that stuff. And so I was you like, could, you could break them up. That's not yeah. an issue. Yeah, yeah that's so, so that's thing. what we did. Yeah, we did them just one at a time, and I like bring it back, and I asked them, I was like, well, why do you um, – do so many at once, and they're like, well, people won't bring their kids back. So it's right, it right. The only Every way the kids are over processed. Mom and dad have two jobs. Yep. The yep. babysitters are there, so it, you can't get them back in. And there's a schedule for it at age groups when they're they're adaptable. Well, let me tell you, you, you say, well, don't use polio as an example. There's a lot of diseases that we've fixed. There are things that eradicate. I mean, look at Lance Armstrong came back from cancer. Right, went right up to his brain, came back from cancer. We fixed that. And that's 10, 15 years ago. It's even better now. But when we have the drugs like this, people say, oh, don't do that. Go juice. Oh, that's brilliant advice. So I hope, I hope their blood is on your hands. That's all I got to say. You know, let them sue you if they get sick. Yeah, I, 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 uh, my deal with the uh, immunization, like when I went and looked at the schedules and they kind of presented it to me, I was like, uh, went back and I looked at the schedule that actually I had and kind of what was like kind of like look and it's almost I think like seven to eight times the injections and I was like you know what I'm good with what my kids or what I did what my wife did and uh, I it was the thing that blew me away is we actually kind of spaced it out over a year and I wouldn't let them hit them with any of the big ones until they got a little bit older because I'm like dude their immune systems aren't even really functioning until they're eight nine ten months a year old so when you're going to hit them with all this stuff early on I'm like I'd rather hit them with stuff a little bit later and, uh, you know, and then the other big one they talked about is people dropping their kids off at daycare at three and four and five months. I'm like, dude, my sure. wife's at home with the kids. I'm like, mm -hmm. the problems that you guys are talking about don't necessarily apply to us, and we'll, work, we'll worry about them a little down the road. And I think the problem, and like, like, you know, like you said, is that people won't bring their kids back. They don't understand it. But uh, it, it just blew me away with uh, how many – because I, 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 mean, I, I remember going and getting immunized when I was a kid and then, like, looking at what they want to do for our kids now, I'm like, God damn, that seems like a lot of shit. I mean, like you know, like three three different uh, uh, deals in uh, uh, you know per deal. I, I just to me it just felt 
little, like looking at my little kids with all these needles, I'm like, let's just wait a little bit. We can get them up to at least a fighting weight. How about like eight or nine pounds? Like, let's let's get some food in their belly before you stick them with a bunch of fucking needles. Yeah, and I agree. But I mean, remember the guys lining up to go over after Pearl Harbor stood in line and they just shot crap in their arms, and all those guys are living to their 80s and 90s because I grew up with those people. <laughs> and they man they managed their way through it. My mother managed. Um, Let's see, what was it? Uh, scarlet fever and rheumatic fever at the same time. I had one aunt who was deaf and burned out her ears, burned out her hearing to get a fever so bad. She lived at like late 80s. My mom lived at My other aunt just passed at like 93. I, it's like, okay, that's that's a gene pool. That's an anecdote. But I can go to generations. I was in nursing homes in Pittsburgh talking to um, one of the sociologists there, and I said, yeah, that whole generation of war guys are all in their 80s, they all made it, and their stories are frightening. They got shot in the arms with them, got exposed, they were on islands with elephantitis, go look up that one sometime. Um, they managed, uh, I think medicine is a good bet, and if you want to go to Liberia, where they take dumps on the beach, and they eat human flesh, and they eat monkeys with Ebola, and hang around there, not with your embassy. Get all these anti-vaccine people, dump them in um, Liberia, <laughs> wander around, look for a Starbucks with their laptop, and um, and and see how they do with open defecation and eating uh, monkey flesh. Um, it, it, that's it. Go go to Western uh, Africa, where now they're starting to eradicate again polio because it was up again. It's in Sao Paulo, believe it or not, polio. Got to let them go down there and hang around the slums for a while. You know, use the same drinking glasses as other people. See how that works for them. They're well, all you... cocky sitting in Beverly Hills talking about anti-vaccine. That's it's that's bullshit. Well, I, I think the uh, yeah, I, I mean, and and we we wrapped about this uh, offline, but I mean, I the thing which is most interesting, and uh, uh, Playtech and I talked a lot about this about epigenetics, that you know we're we today are products of our grandparents, and I think like maybe just hardier stock. I mean, you know, you were talking about you know West Virginia coal miners and you know uh, West Pennsylvania guys working you know in the field, you know, 15 people in a family. I mean, just hardier. I mean, just the mere fact that like those kids to actually be the number 15 to come out of a mom. I mean, think about how uh, sapped her body was at that point. I mean, people now have one kid, and the kid has all these problems. And I'm like, dude, like, I know my mom and dad all came from, you know, seven, eight, nine kids and came from bigger families. And it's like, I just think it was, uh, came from hardier stock or maybe the, you know, something was different, but it doesn't feel that we are maybe as fucking tough as, as maybe what we used to be. Yeah, that's certainly where we could be diluting our gene pools, you know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, anybody can have babies now. you got to have to think about it, too. A lot of babies died at birth. They weren't the hardiest, and they uh, they would die at birth. So the stronger ones live, which is natural selections. Now women with uh, slender hips, and for many years, obviously, centuries, could have cesarean sections and live who weren't meant to have childbirth. So mother and child would die, and that gene pool would end there. So um, we've kind of eliminated that. Where the, the medicine around obstetrics is amazing, so more people can have babies. And what are they? They're having them later in life. And to me, that might be doesn't mean it's good or bad. Once again, it's not moralized, but that may change things when we're dealing with older eggs. You have a greater chance yeah. of having twins later in life too. So that's kind of cool. Well, the uh, the older egg, but also there was a, a deal they talked about that um, older sperm which I, I thought was kind of hysterical because they were like, oh, it's a uh, man with older sperm. And I'm like, dude, I have, I, you know, there's men that have, have fathered children into their 70s and 80s. Yep. So I'm like, I, you know, I, I don't buy that one as much as maybe it's something environmental or maybe these motherfuckers are just out of shape. Maybe uh, back then a 70 or 80-year-old was in better shape than the 35, 38-year-old today. 
you know, because I definitely know that like uh, not only diet but also exercise and you know, there's other key factors about um, uh, sperm quality. I had a pretty long talk with Inkladon about this, and he's like, you know, there's uh, you know a lot of key factors that people don't realize for sperm quality that you know things like uh, muscle mass and and um, you know healthy androgen profile, diet, exercise, all these other key factors all contribute to that sperm quality. So his kind of thought was like maybe those guys were just way more fucking fit and in better shape back then. Seventy year you know, people today are just you know shells of our former self. Yeah, you know, we, uh, I was discussing anecdote earlier, and I'm in, well, I have construction around where I live now. They're building lakes actually, but I see these yard crews out, and on the front truck of the yard crew is a big insulated barrel full of water. It's plastic and is baking in the sun all day. And these guys drink water out of there. And a lot of Central American workers down here in Florida drinking water out of there, doing very tough work, laying sod, doing trees. And they have plenty of kids, and they're plenty fertile for, for these xenoestrogens that are supposedly poisoning the American male out of water bottles. And um, I, I just that's an interesting, and I'm saying it's a lot of them. It's not like one case. If you go to yard crews around the United States, you'd see a big water barrel on the front of the truck or back of the truck tied on there. The guy fills up with a hose every morning, puts a top on, dumps a bag of ice in it, and then the guys come drink out of it. And if I can't think of something more baked in the sun than that, and guys drinking water consistently five days a week in that, that would be a wonderful thing to test in terms of xenoestrogens. I mean, it gets back to guys carrying bottled water, and it gets back to why are we carrying bottled water? Why? Well, I, I don't know about you, but uh, we drank out of the hose. Like, I, yeah, I remember I, uh, I remember I was in high school the first time I saw uh, bottled water. Like, that. Like I, I remember uh, somebody had, like, a like a plastic Avion bottle, and I was like, what's that? And they were like, well, it's water. And, they gave, and I was like, well, let me try some. And I thought it would be, like, this sweet water. And I, like, tasted it. I'm like, this is fucking water. And yeah. I, you know, and I remember we always had like the sparklets bottles, and uh, you know, like we would have like one of like the water dispensers that we drank out of those. Or, yeah, you know. yeah, you know. And what's interesting is, is, is how do you get a product you would charge more for the same product, like fitness? You charge more for bottled water, more than gasoline, because you say regular water is going to kill you, but our water won't kill you. And you charge more for medical, like uh, naturopathy, chiropractic, in some cases, when they start trying to do uh, alternative medicine. We're going to charge you more, but we won't use man-made drugs on you because it only feeds big pharma. And the same thing goes on with fitness. You can go to the gym and do fitness, but those people will hurt you. If you do this specialized fitness, we're going to make you functional. And so rather than sell your product on your own merits, you sell it on disparaging the other product. And, and that's worked throughout history. Uh, Whole Foods works on that basis and so forth. Go to Whole Foods. The food there is healthy. Now, even if you get fat on the crackers, it's healthy. But uh, if you go down, you know, down the hood and you go buy a piece of some ribs down the hood, you're going to die someday. But the the roofer down the street who works a 16-hour day can eat those and thrive. Well, and, I, I don't know. My my favorite thing about Whole Foods is uh, we go there like maybe twice a month. I take the kids there, and it's their favorite place to go because they like to walk around and look at all the uh, all the stuff. Yeah. So they take them to the store, they have to look at all the vegetables and like what is like all these bright colors. And dude, Whole Foods does a great job of like not only like putting all the colorful stuff, uh, you know, by the door. So they walk in and it's funny, we always go to the, my daughter like loves the meat counter because she's never seen like, you know, because meat counter is like the whole back of the fucking store. And like we look and I'm like, so which one do you want? And they always kind of point and like, you know, so we go there twice a week is more or twice a month is uh, kind of more of a novelty. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but uh, yeah, it just, it, it's, uh, 
I think what you know, like I, I think what they've done is they basically have cracked the consumer code so much that they realize that you know, for, for the same reason that fish get caught with lures, the same reason we get we get sure. caught with uh, shiny, you know, bright objects, and you know that's how it is. But it seems like um, you do better, and you actually made a great point. You do be better selling fear than you do actually selling help. Yep. Yep. You know? Absolutely. If you sell fear, and, and that that'll work, and you could charge more for your product. If uh, electric car costs more, but it's saving the environment, people buy the electric car. Not looking at that, you've got SUVs now that get over 20 miles per gallon, like um, you know, uh, uh, and and so the electric car is better. And I'm nothing against electric car; they're they're cool. And but the fact of the matter is that's the only way you could sell it is through that. The other thing is bad for, and it gets into the philosophy is if this is good, then the other thing has to be bad. There can't be two goods. Good for whom? And and the same thing for the fitness program. You could take any exercise. Some guys will love overhead presses. Some will swear at them. Some will say never do a bench. Others will say never do an overhead press. Then you say, well, I've listened to both arguments. There isn't an argument. You're going to have to find out that both are viable. You're going to have to try both of them and see which one is working with your physiology. And that's where the coaching comes in. Doing overhead presses, my shoulders hurt. How about with the bench presses? Not so much. Oh, I guess we're going to bench press. There's brilliant coaching for you. And that's a pretty much the whole game. It's what the doctor says. It hurts when I go like this. Well, don't go like that. Oh, Doc, it's much, it's much better now, Doc. Yeah, amazing, huh? I mean, that, that, that's coaching. Sure, you have to have a bigger picture in mind, but a lot of it is that objective viewpoint because you can't – there's emotion involved in subjectivity. That, that's the biggest thing. You think you're not doing enough. You think you're doing too much. You think there's secret exercises. That's subjective. When you're objective, you throw that crap out, hopefully, and, and train someone based on the evidence they give you. You mean there's not a Bulgarian, Russian, Smoloff, Hatch secret program that exists somewhere that we can find in? No, it's, it's <laughs> usually found on like page 46 of some obscure uh, forums that you have to email the guy and then he'll send it to you, but, uh, you know, and then he'll send you some program. No, I mean, dude, it's, it's funny, man. We, we run into that all the time. But like, you know, I'm like, dude, there really isn't any secret. Like, uh, it's just... It's about progression, and it's about maybe doing a little bit more today than you did yesterday. It's like, uh, you know, which has been really the secret, like the secret of life. You can go back and look at all the Milo. You know, Milo was little. He had a little calf, and as Milo got bigger, he kept picking the calf up. I mean, that to me was probably the best analogy for training uh, that I've ever seen. I'm like, you got to do a little bit more than you did yesterday, and hopefully as everything progresses, you progress into it. And, um, you know, it's like, you know, and, and I think what, what we've run into, and this is, I, I, you know, maybe it's the computer age or the time we're at in history where this idea of hacking everything. Oh, I want to hack this, and like I'm a biohacker, and I'm going to save you all this time because I was able to hack my, you know, all this. And the minute I hear anybody refer themselves as a biohacker or they hack this, every hair on my body fucking stands up. Yeah. I hear fucking charlatan because they're like the only hack is there is no fucking hack, and there really isn't any shortcut. Uh, Kelly Starrett did a deal with um, uh, the guy, the Bulletproof exec, and he went down and he gave a presentation about his mobility and, you know, this, and everybody wanted to know, well, which ones do I really need to do? And he's like, well, um, you, you know, it's a progression, so what you have to do is you have to test and retest, and here's all the movements, and then, you know, if you have dysfunction here, you kind of go this, it's kind of choose your own adventure based on that, and they're like, well, yeah, yeah, we understand that, but which ones do I really need to do? What's the hack in this? How do I get to the end faster without having to do everything? And mm -hmm. he was like, he, he, he's like was blown away. He's like, uh, I, like, what do you mean? Like, 
there is. Well, no, no, like, you know, I, I know you have all these stretches and all this, but what, what are the ones I really need? I'm yeah, what's the secret ones? Give me the one that you don't tell anyone, yeah. Well, yeah, and it's like, well, you know, I paid $10,000 to be at this at, at this conference and this uh, this event because I was going to secretly get the information that nobody else to hack this thing, that I can be in good shape and healthy and all these other things I want without really having to do it. And uh, that, I think, is the time we're at in history where now it's like, you know, I've never met uh, or there's probably never been a time where we have so much technology to make everything more efficient, faster, and more convenient. But now, for some reason, nobody has any time to do anything. Right. I, 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 I we're, we walk with phones and computers in our palms, and we, we were in cars with, with GPSs. And when people speak to you and the arrogance coming out, well, you don't realize how busy I am, which to me is like fighting words. I, I find that intensively arrogant. Um, it, it's it's the information's out there. The ability to to filter it is not. So we didn't develop. It's like winning the lotto. Do you know how to spend and invest money? I you know, no. So you're gonna what are you gonna go out and get you know, like a big TV or spend money on vacations and it's gone in a year? Or are you gonna sit down and say, okay, let's fix a few things up in the house, pay a few bills, and invest the rest? They don't know how to spend it. And these people with all this information available, there's so much crap out there. But there's always been crap. There's always been charlatans. There's always been snake oil salesmen. It's just it's spread so thick now. And like you said, there is there's no free lunch. There's no free lunch. There are no shortcuts. And if you do find something that's somewhat efficient, it, it, it's like, well, this works. Okay. So you, if you market the hell out of it, you become very wealthy. Um, I just had a friend who... Um, one of my martial arts buds grew up where I did in Western Pennsylvania, and he's been a uh, prison guard for most all of his life, and martial arts all of his life, and he's a very good martial arts teacher and 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 so forth. He got invited to go to Singapore, so when he was over in Singapore, he had a great host, and the host actually got him to train. There's like a SWAT team for prisons in Indonesia, where if there's a riot, they come in and have to break things up. I, I wouldn't want that job, but he got to train them. And I'm going to be talking to him soon. I'm going to say, listen, you got to take this stuff and market it. Like the secret techniques I only teach in, in Indonesian prisons. <laughs> these, are, these are only taught to the deadliest of, 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 of tactical officers who break down, you know, uh, what's called raid redemption type riots in Indonesian prisons. You're going to, and he's doing well with this workshop. But, but that's all you need. You find a way to, like, all of our clients went up 100 pounds in the squat, and it's a secret. You become rich because people think there's there's a shortcut, and, and, and like I said, there's there's no free lunch. Yeah, no, I mean we uh, we put free programming out for years, and uh, we've had people make some phenomenal gains. And um, you know, I mean, it's you know, uh, you know, and people always you know, want more, which is good because I mean, you can offer a more detailed experience. But at the end of the day, the message never changes. It's like you know. I don't know how to get you there on one day a week. I could probably get you there on like three or four days a week, assuming everything else is right. And I'm like, you know, like we, um, at that talk I did in Atlanta, I talked about, uh, you know, how do people reach that kind of like, you know, level of advancement, that X factor, whether it be in sports or different things. And it's actually this kind of balancing of not only, you know, uh, you know can I do it? Have I developed the physical skills to, to do this? Do I understand, uh, you know, mentally what's, you know, what's needed of me and then do I have the uh, the raw material to make it happen and it's like it, you know and like when all those kind of get balanced you kind of reach this you know we call it flow state they call it x factor whatever you want to call mm -hmm. it it's right. like 
it, but it basically goes into everything, you know, like, can I do it? Do I have the ability to do it? And more importantly, like, you know, uh, you know can I, you know, can, can I mentally handle the time to do it? And it just, it kind of, you know, goes back to a lot of different stuff, not only athleticism, but, you know, we're at a, we're at an interesting thing. I mean, we say it all the time, man, I live in interesting days. And that was a, you know, an old deal, you know, me living in interesting sure. times. And I think this is a, we're in an interesting time. And, you know, what's cool is we get to wrap up through the internet and, uh, you know, record a cool podcast and get to talk to you about it and have some fun. Absolutely. So, but, um, Tom, well, where, where can people get a hold of you? Uh, uh dot is very easy. Um, yeah. uh, easy to find on the internet, TomFerman.com and, um, Contact me, email through their website, and I have some products for sale in there. A book on Amazon. I've got some ebooks out there. There'll be more to come. And I primarily do coaching online. And you know, I've taught workshops before. And if it, I don't, I don't like repetitively teach or invent things to teach workshops. If there's something good to be taught and people need to learn, I like to teach it. But I think sometimes workshops come up and people have to reinvent old crap, as we've been discussing for an hour and then teach it. And uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily fair to those paying. I think they need to get something innovative and a clear thought. So that'd be the easiest way. Awesome. Well, um, our time is up, and so uh, we'll sign off. And thank you very much for taking time, and hopefully we'll be talking to you again. Okay. Take care, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Tom. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. To learn more about Tom Furman's methods and view his publications, visit his website, www.tomfurman.com. He has a ton of literature out there, both for purchase and for free, that covers everything from nutrition and diet to training. Be sure to check all of those resources out. Don't forget that Power Athlete HQ has partnered with Caveman Coffee Co., and we are bringing you the most jacked up beverage since Four Loco. Good news, this beverage is actually legal. Visit our Instagram at PowerAthleteHQ to find updates on its release. Until next time, bye!